This is Risky Women Radio, a show to connect, celebrate and champion women in risk, regulation and compliance. Sharing insight and perspective from the most influential members of our global Risky Women Network on the latest developments we need to think about, the challenges we should all talk more about and the innovation we are most excited about in governance, risk and compliance. Bringing together the hundreds of senior women professionals already connected with a new emerging group of leading women and men. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. Hi, we're always looking for sponsors and if you'd like to get involved and help celebrate and champion women in risk regulation and compliance, please get in contact at info at riskywomen.org. We'd love to have you join the show. Welcome to Risky Women Radio. I have been wanting to have Prue Bennett join us on Risky Women Radio for some time, so I was thrilled that we finally got our schedules to align and she joins us here today. We did have a great live event, which we've had to postpone, but like everyone else, we've managed to adapt and move our formats. And so here we are speaking via Zoom, and I think you are going to really enjoy this episode. I met Prue many years ago now in Hong Kong, and my initial interaction was a keynote that she delivered at the Women's Foundation on a report that Prue had authored on diversity on boards. Since then, I have learned so much from Prue on governance and its impact and some really great ideas on how companies need to sort of shift and change their focus. Prue Bennett is a seasoned corporate governance leader who is now sharing her vast experience as a senior advisor amongst many other leadership and advisory roles that she holds. She spent the bulk of her career at BlackRock as a leading director in governance, and Prue actively participates in public debates on corporate governance and stewardship. She received the Asia Industry Leadership Award from the 100 Women in Finance, as well as being listed as Australia's top 10 women of influence in corporate governance. She's known as a champion for diversity and inclusion, having published numerous papers on diversity and boards, as well as steering the Women's Foundation Hong Kong's 30% Club, which is focused on boosting the number of women on boards and in senior management. I hope you enjoy this episode, which kicks off season three of Risky Women Radio. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Risky Women Radio. Today's Risky Woman is Prue Bennett. Welcome, Prue, to Risky Women Radio. Well, thank you for having me, Kimberly. It's a pleasure. Now, we always kick off and try to understand a bit more about the sort of career journey of our risky women, which is always fascinating. So you've been focused on governance and tell us more about your journey today. Well, I always describe my career as being very serendipitous. I started as a chartered accountant, uh, went through that pathway and ended up with Qantas as in best relations. It was a, a very good opportunity because it was when Qantas went from being privately owned or government owned uh, to listing on the stock exchange. But it was also at a time when I really experienced gender discrimination, being female and also being female with children and the opportunities. I wasn't getting the opportunities that, that others were that weren't in my situation. But it was at that time I came across a proxy advisory firm that was advising institutional shareholders of how to vote at Qantas's annual general meeting. And it was very different from the analyst reports that I had been reviewing over the, the previous sort of one or two years. And I was quite interested and started a conversation and I asked if I could uh, join their firm. So I then 
made it quite clear to them that I had uh, two small children, that I wanted to work part-time, earn a certain level of income, and that if my children were sick, I didn't come in and I wasn't to be questioned, which was a real problem from where I was. And they said, yep, no problems. I joined that firm in 1997. In 1998, when I was actually pregnant with my third child, I was offered a directorship and also took over as CEO, and I ran that business for 12 years, and, and then we were um, bought out by Glass-Lewis. And it was at the time when executive compensation wasn't an issue, climate change wasn't an issue. So I've been very fortunate to be on a, that, that real journey in ESG uh, from, from the very, very beginning. Uh, but as I said before, it's very serendipitous is how I ended up there and there was no science to it or, or, or deep thought about planning it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. And, um, I mean, you mentioned ESG there and obviously I spoke about, you know, sort of your focus on the, the G and that, the governance. Can you tell us, you know, Risky Women, a bit more detail about what's the importance of the governance role and sort of maybe a bit more details around sort of what elements it covers? The G is the most important and that acronym ESG sort of developed in the mid-2000s and I remember seeing it and saying, why is the G at the end? And the, the G when it comes to the board is, is critical and it's around having a board that's comprised of competent people and I know all the guidelines talk about majority of independent but it's not just about having independent directors, it's about having competent directors, it's around having diversity of thought around the board table. It's around having core industry skills amongst the independent directors uh, to have oversight of management. And so those directors are there of listed companies really representing the, uh, the shareholders and, and investors. And it's that oversight they have of management to be able to challenge management on, on various issues and have that collective knowledge, skills and experience to be able to do that. And I always talk about looking at ENS through the G lens. So if you've got a competent board, the right skills and experience, whatever a company is exposed to from an ENS risk is going to be managed better than a board that is not competent and doesn't ask those questions of management and doesn't understand what the company is exposed to from an ENS perspective. Mm, very interesting. Um, so given that you, you said your sort of career journey was very serendipitous, but what do you think was the biggest risk that you've taken in your career? I think my big, probably the biggest risk I've taken was was leaving, retiring from BlackRock. I um, I gave twelve months notice. I uh, it was it was a fabulous uh, role, but uh, relocating to Sydney to be back with a, a, a three children was a, was a priority. So now I'm working for myself. So that's been a bit of a a risk to take uh, to to go from working for a very large organisation, a secure organisation, to be now in charge of my own destiny for the for the next few years at least. Interesting too, and um, and so I mean, obviously, then lots of career choices you've made along the way, including this most recent one. And what were some of the motivations, or the I guess you said it was serendipitous, but what kind of thinking happened along the way when you were making your career choices? Well, it was very serendipitous up until, um, you know, I got into governance. And what I found out about governance is that you're in a position to make a difference. So at Corporate Governance International, CGI, we were making recommendations to our clients about how to vote at shareholder meetings. And initially, institutional investors didn't vote. 
we did research to identify this that was published uh, that put pressure on institutional investors to vote. We then had asset owners as clients who were pushing their managers to, to vote. And so I felt that our firm really had an influence in increasing voting, increasing making issues such as composition, succession planning, executive remuneration, you know, bringing them to the forefront because this really mattered to long-term value creation for companies listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. And likewise with my stewardship role uh, at BlackRock with the engagement that I was able to do uh, with companies is, is, is making a difference for our clients. And so that was always the question I would ask in any uh, decisions to, to change roles. And that's been a common theme uh, since I got into corporate governance work. And, and what are the lessons that you think you've kind of learned along the way and, um, and how you've sort of adapted and, and, and moved as you've learned things? Keeping an open mind and looking out for unintended consequences. Governance can be seen very much as a, as a tick the box approach. And there were many companies that didn't tick all the boxes. So did that mean we should just recommend against the re-election of certain directors? And so, again, stepping back, having a look at the company and the circumstances and keeping that open mind. I think a really good example of that is I was at a conference uh, and the speaker was talking about child labour. A company in Brazil was, was accused of using child labour in, um, in agricultural work and the investor said, oh, well, we're getting rid of your, our investment in that because we don't support companies that have child labour. The company stopped it. The alternative for the girls, and it was mainly girls at around age 12, to earn income was prostitution. So while it looks very good um, and well-meaning that we don't invest in companies that use child labour, the unintended consequences of that, of that decision was absolutely dire for those, for those workers. So keeping an open mind, looking out for unintended consequences and not taking that tick-the-box approach, I think, is, um, is what I've really learned. I think that's fantastic advice and exactly right on the, on the sort of child labour, slave labour, is that making people more vulnerable increases um, the, the implications and the, and the risk for that behaviour. So, yeah, fantastic, fantastic points. Um, and, and sort of ch slightly change of tack here, but uh, who are some of the role models that you've been inspired by? I think Sandy Easterbrook, who was one of the original founders of Corporate Governance International, uh, has really been a role model for me and I've just attended Sandy's 80th birthday last Sunday. Uh, Sandy has a fantastic legal mind. He's a former partner at, um, at Mallison's. And he took the time to, to sit down and really explain to me you know, how governance worked and how important. Now, he used to use the expression that corporate governance isn't rocket science. And it's not when you're talking about getting the right people, right mix of skills on the board, core industry skills. It just makes sense. And he just had a really considered way of, of looking at issues. And another person that has really inspired me is Mervyn King. He is the founder of Integrated Reporting. And he's just got an extraordinary mind when he talks about the corporation being an incapacitated per, uh, person, the role of the board as stewards to hand on the, 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 the state of the company to the next board in as good and preferably better condition that, that they got it in. 
And there's one other person, and that's um, Geraldine Buckingham, which is amazing because she's 20 years younger than me and to, to, to then have someone that I aspire to who's significantly younger. But uh, she's now uh, chairman of Asia Pacific for BlackRock based in Hong Kong. And uh, what I learned from her was around managing a team and partnering with your, with your direct reports and your team to help them progress in their careers and your responsibility as a leader to partner with your people. And I followed her advice and from my team, and I had a fabulous team in Hong Kong, I really got a lot out of them or that, you know, the, their contribution just, just totally changed. And I had a, a real diverse team from a, a very large team in Japan, in Singapore and in Australia and obviously Hong Kong and, um, and being able to do that partnership was, was just a game changer for me in team management. That's uh, super advice there and obviously some, some fabulous role models to um, learn and be guided by. But I think that's, um, you know, good guidance for all of us. So you mentioned there, you know, the focus of boards. Um, I'd like to get your expert opinion now on the focus on boards and, and really dig into maybe some of the purpose. Um, we've mentioned... Uh, ESG is now a hot topic or environment, social and governance. So in your view, is the focus on all of these elements at the correct level and at the correct focus, especially at both the board and maybe the executive level as well? It is changing and it depends in the world where you are. Um, the, the, the G will always be the most important. Uh, and I think with the environmental and social side, what, what is happening and what has happened to the valuation of companies over the years that has changed quite significantly. There's research shows that in 1975, uh, the average S&P company, 75% of market cap was made up of physical and financial assets, 25% was intangible. Now that's completely reversed. By 2016, it's 85% intangible, and that's the E and the S, and that's where the value creation and potential value loss can be made in a company. So while the G still remains just as important, the value of, of the E and S when you're talking about market cap has changed significantly. And I'm not convinced that boards and management have really acknowledged that shift in value and have changed their thinking and the, their decision-making processes that align with that shift in value. Interesting. So what, what questions should boards be asking? It's a good question because I think that should change a lot compared to, say, 10 years ago or even five years ago. And the way I look at it is, you know, yesterday's board was asking the question, what money are we making? Today's board should be asking the questions, how are we making our money? What are our externalities? What's our footprint on society? And how can we minimise our externality? And another yesterday's question would be, how do we best serve our shareholders? Where today's question is, what is our purpose? What are our values and principles? And how vulnerable are we? is our social licence to operate? But other questions that boards should be asking themselves or should be along the lines of, do we have true diversity of thought? And I think this is a question that, that is starting to be asked more and more, but if you go back 20 years ago, that wasn't even on the table. Are we getting the right information? And that's around that shift in valuation about, you know, I'm convinced that 
uh, and based on my discussions that most boards are still focused on that physical and financial aspects and the information is all around the physical and financial aspects of the company and not around that where the value is, which is 85%. And boards should be asking where they really understand their conflicts of interests. And that comes to the topic of executive compensation because uh, most boards receive their advice around executive compensation from management. So that's a huge conflict. And I don't, and again, based on my discussions with directors, I'm not convinced most of them really understand managing that, that conflict of interest. Yeah, stakeholders, do boards really understand who their stakeholders are these days? And, and that has changed. Uh, and whether or not boards are meeting their stakeholder needs. I think boards also should be asking questions around the level of trust, the level of trust also internally and externally. And we've seen with the Banking Royal Commission what happened with the level of trust for Australian banks. And once that trust is lost, it can take years to build that up. So it's much better off for boards to be in a position where, that, where they don't lose that trust and maintain that trust, but are they getting the information about it and do they really understand where they, where they are in terms of the community and also their own internal stakeholders of where they are with trust? And does the board really understand the true costs of how the returns are generated or are they simply focused on those costs that are itemised in the P&L? And a good example of that is staff turnover. Staff turnover is a huge cost on businesses. But when you look at the P&L, there's no line item staff turnover cost because it's, it's reflected through all those other costs, those other line items. And also boards should be asking themselves, where, where are they vulnerable? And I think the whole COVID-19 issue has just raised vulnerabilities with, with boards. Um, yes, they've had business continuity plans. Uh, they, they've sort of tested every six or, or three months, but now they've got to be implemented. And uh, I'm not sure that the boards were really ready for, for, for this. And again, that comes down to crisis management. Uh, do they have the right resilient directors on the board for a situation like this? You can't have directors that can't face up to these challenges. Yeah, incredibly complex. Um, lots of questions, as you say, that boards should be asking. And I think, you know, as you said there, the the social licence to operate the, the trust and that true cost element, um, you know, and how they map that out and, and how they actually, that that goes from top down through the organisation is incredibly important. Yeah, yeah. And, and how are you seeing that the best companies like measure and, and tackle some of those, uh, those issues uh, around ESG? Transparency is the key. Uh, and also ESG disclosure and, and management is an evolving issue. And seeing that change as, as, as uh, I think, management becomes more aware of it, management and boards become more comfortable with their disclosures. It's, and I think climate change disclosure is a very good example of this. And I'm working with a client at the moment who's really struggling with how much to disclose and how to, to, to disclose issues without making them vulnerable. And greenwashing is, can be just so obvious with some of the disclosures that you, that you see. And from an investor perspective, investors can only make their judgments and come to conclusions based on, on public disclosures. But boards and, and in particular the CEO taking a position on certain issues and at the leadership position 
as opposed to just following what peers do, I think identifies a good board from a lesson from the board. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to sort of understand a bit more about that as well. I mean, what do you think are the characteristics of a high-performing board? You know, you've spoken to many boards of directors, many management teams, and so what are those attributes that you think the board directors also need to hold to, to effectively deliver their duty? The board as a whole has to have the right collection and diversity of skills. So that's put sort of a, a starting point. But each of those individuals needs to have intellectual honesty and they need to be able to ask the hard questions of management and, and of themselves. And they also need to be able to identify where they may lack expertise in a particular topic, cybersecurity being one and climate change being another. Now, we... Investors don't expect to see a cybersecurity expert on every board. Uh, it's just, one, it's not possible. There wouldn't be enough people. And two, a good cybersecurity expert doesn't necessarily make a good director. But boards should be able to have that intellectual honesty to go and seek independent advice on certain topics so that they can challenge management in a constructive way and in an informed way as opposed to just hiding behind the issue and not asking any questions. And directors with that intellectual honesty, uh, I think, are few and far between. Um, it's, it's unfortunate, but being able, as I said, being able to identify when you don't have the, the knowledge and skills in a particular area to be able to ask informed questions of management and then going, putting your hand up saying, I need to get some independent uh, expert advice, getting that advice and taking, bring it back into the boardroom is, is extremely important. Uh, yes, independent expert advice. Um, and I also like your intellectual honesty as, um, you know, key attribute. So that's um, very true. Um, what, are the, what are the key focus areas for you currently? And I guess we would have just had a, a pretty rapid shift on what some of those focus areas are. But thinking, you know, before COVID-19, what was the sort of agenda that you saw for the 2020 uh, focus for companies? Um, and obviously there's been some pretty dramatic changes in that agenda. I think climate change is the number one issue for companies, whether the company is in an industry that is significantly exposed to climate change risk, uh, such as oil and gas and extractive industries, uh, as opposed to, say, financial uh, services companies. Uh, boards need to take a position on this issue. They need to articulate that to shareholders, investors and, and other stakeholders and determine how they're going to disclose in particular issues around scenario analysis and their long-term strategy because, well, the long-term strategy might be determined today, within the next couple of years, there will be technology changes that will impact that. And so it, it is an absolute journey around climate change, but to be aware and, and know about being, um, or make a commitment, minimum commitment to be net zero by 2050, if not for and before that, and I've just been working on some research this morning, that I'd say there's an increasing number of companies that are bringing that date forward and, and not be scared to make those ambitious commitments. And I think that's, that, that comes back to uh, another attribute of a director is to have courage, but they do need to be able to make informed decisions on these issues.
Yeah, I think uh, we we should do it. We could do another another podcast. Um, you know, tackling or trying to to tackle that issue and and how people should be acting. But I think you know, climate change you know remains top of the agenda, as you say. Um, and and how does the tone at the top, um, you know, frame some of that discussion? I guess you know we we it's it's talked about a lot. It's an area of discussion, regulator focus, and um, given the number of you know corporate scandals and misconduct how are companies and boards ensure that they understand and that they can influence that tone at the top all companies should have a stated purpose values and principles and whatever decisions are made the the those purpose values and principles should be part of that and so in any decision it's it's not a case of or can we because you probably can it should be and is this aligned with the company's purpose values and principles an example where that wasn't a case was vw and in about, i think it was about 2010 2011 volkswagen's purpose was to manufacture the most number of cars they lacked values and they lacked principles so yes they ticked that box they, they became the the, the biggest uh, the, the manufacturer of most number of cars uh, uh, globally, but we know what happened to, to Volkswagen. We know the loss of value. We know the loss of trust. And that's because that was missing the, the values and the principles, which are just so important. And they have to be lived and breathed and walked and talked by the senior leadership team. But it's not just tone at the top. It's also the mood in the middle uh, is just as important because if that tone at the top is failing to get down to the mood in the middle, the board and senior management need to know that. So again, the board asking the questions, are we getting the right information around that mood in the middle? And there's increasing technology that's available to be able to, to, to measure that. And uh, this is what boards should be on top of. Love it. I love it. The mood in the middle, which is often where we we see the the um, resistance to change as well when we're trying to implement a whole range of different uh, transformation and and uh, it, you know often what we think is quite innovative ways of doing things, but that mood in the middle is often the the, the real sticking point. So managing risk, which is obviously one of our um, you know favourite topics on risky women. Um, but also absolutely key for boards. And you've already mentioned this need to look beyond the sort of financial risk and take a proper 360-degree view of both, you know, sort of your operational, your compliance risks. And it's obviously been highlighted in several reports from regulators. So how can boards and, and companies, I guess, ensure that they're being proactive and preemptive and not just reactive in managing some of those risks? Yeah. Well, they've got to make sure that they've got the right information. And this is where integrated reporting comes in. I happen to sit on the board of the International Integrated Reporting Council. And while the integrated reports, the external reports are comprehensive and useful for investors, it's the integrated thinking that it generates internally, which is just as important. And what integrated reporting does is break that value of the company into six capitals. So that's the financial and the physical capital that most boards are familiar with and used to getting reports on. But it's the social capital, the environment capital, the human capital and the intellectual capital that boards should be receiving information upon because if we're talking about value creation, if they don't understand where the value is, what's going to impact the, the value of that both positively and negatively, they won't be on top of the risks that, that are facing that company. And so 
that's the way that they can be proactive, but they can't be proactive unless they're getting the correct information. Yeah, absolutely. So can you share sort of changes that you've seen as well around the impact of of diversity or the, you know, maybe the increasing diversity, hopefully, over the length of your career? You sort of mentioned that at the start. It's, it's changed significantly and I do know people who work at Qantas now and it is not this has a completely different uh, environment and atmosphere than when I was there, so that was a, a, a significant change. But with my work with boards over the last 25 years, we've seen the percentage of women on boards increase in, in Australia in the ASX 200 from less than 10% to have just hit 30%, which I think is a, a great achievement. And so I, I ask directors when I meet them, has this made a difference? And it has. And I think a lot of directors used to use the argument that, um, oh, we only appoint by merit and that's why we don't have any women on the board. Um, now the conversation is actually we've now got three women on the board. It's actually changed the conversation to a better conversation, a more informed uh, uh, conversation. And I think some of those director dinosaurs who were very anti-targets or quotas have, have now sort of um, succession planned off those boards, which is good. So we're seeing much, I, I think, younger women coming on with different backgrounds. Um, some research that I did back in 2009 showed that 70% of non-executive directors were either CEOs or former executives of ASX 200 companies. Now, given the fact that I think even today that's um, still less than 10% women, um, you still just had the same type of person coming onto the board. So we're not, it's not just about gender diversity that we're seeing, it's about diversity of background and experience and skills that are coming to those boards. And based on the discussions that I've had, it has definitely improved discussion around the board table. Well, fantastic to have a, a positive uh, change and shift. Um, that's, that's great. Connecting, celebrating and championing women in risk regulation and compliance, Risky Women Radio takes an intimate look at the rants and revelations of the top women shaping the debate and the industry. So, on to our rants and revelations, which is one of my favourite sections of our Risky Women Radio podcast. So what's your top piece of advice that you've been given and that has really helped you and progress through your career? Well, I'll never forget my first day of working after I graduated. I was living at home and I left to get the train to work and my father said to me, my father had just retired, I've never been involved in a dishonest transaction in my life. And I have always taken that and I and that has um and I can say the same thing to my children now that they've, um, they've finished university and working, and I've always had a really high ethical standard of what I do. And oftentimes, you know, people might throw up ideas and my, my view will be don't lower your standards. Just don't lower your standards. And, and I think that has really helped me. I might have missed out on opportunities by not lowering my standards. I'm quite comfortable with that. And I will continue working with that that level of ethics and honesty in, in what I do. Love it. Don't lower your standards. I think that's one for everybody. And what's your rant? So, you know, if we had uh, ruler of the world, Prue Bennett, for the day, what's the, the one thing that you would change? 
some standardisation of reporting around ENS issues. It's what I would call a dog's breakfast. <laughs> there are so many organisations out there, there's 200 plus that have the solution to ENS reporting. You've got SASB, you've got GRI, you've got the reporting dialogue, you've got this and you've got that. I'd like them all to come together and all come to agreement. I think that will help companies with their reporting because they used to ask me, oh, do we use SASB, do we use GRI, do we use this, do we do that? Um, investors struggle because they don't have consistency of data to be able to assess companies. And so if I could wave that magic wand, it would be some standardisation around ESG uh, reporting, which will help both companies and investors. Excellent, excellent. I think, uh, well, let's hope your magic wand, uh, you know, works. Maybe the influence of Risky Women Radio, we can change the world. <laughs> Risky Women is a vibrant network at the centre of a global community in a rapidly growing, evolving and influential industry. Given the continued pace of change, our Rapid Fire Round revisits the most pressing topics to share ideas and offer listeners new perspectives. All right, the final Rapid Fire Round. What um, is your prediction or your what you think is the, the key trend for the year ahead? Well, with COVID-19, who knows? Um, not so much a prediction that a wish that it's not going to be as bad as what they're saying on the on the news today. I, I it, how this is going to impact in, impact the world is such an unknown, and it's more of a, a wish than a prediction that it's not going to be as bad. But we will all get really good at working remotely. <laughs> we'll get and and those um, business continuity plans, um, you know, will work. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, so do you have a cure for the cost of compliance? Uh, two things, good systems, and secondly, to see a lot of what is called compliance as an opportunity. Um, too often I'm told about uh, oh, corporate governance is a compliance issue. It's not. It's a strategic issue. It can make your company better. It can distinguish your, your business and what you do from your competitors. So I think it should also be looked at as, a, as an opportunity as opposed to just simply compliance. Excellent. We often say this, but risk and opportunity is the same word in Chinese, seen as, you know, one side of the, the or the other side of the coin. So are you optimistic, pessimistic or neutral for your outlook in the year ahead? Oh, that's a day-by-day thing in the current circumstances. I, I call myself an optimist, so I'm always um, pretty optimistic about what's going to happen. My, uh, my other wish list is, yeah, as I said before, that this virus uh, sorts itself out within the next month or two months or so, uh, and then the world can get back to I, I'm possibly being a better place here. So every time something like this happens, we learn, we do things better. Um, so there, there could be some positives that come out of this. So while we're all uh, working from home, let's um, get your advice on what's a book that you recommend that everyone reads. Oh, look, I'm a real reader of autobiographies and I think the best one I read was Nelson Mandela, Walk to Freedom. I just found it uh, uh, absolutely fascinating about the, the patience and conviction uh, of Nelson Mandela and what, what he did uh, achieve at the time. Yeah, amazing, man. Um, something to watch? Oh, Billions. I'm a bit of a Billions fan. <laughs> and I know the new series is just coming out, so I'll wait till all the episodes are out and I'll do a binge, a binge watch on that. 
Um, yeah, some people love it, some people hate it, but uh, I'm a bit of a Billions fan. Excellent. And what's your favourite podcast? Oh, there's only one answer for that, Risky Women. Oh, of course. Thank you very <laughs> much, very much. Okay, well, it's been fantastic to have you join us, uh, Prue Bennett. We could have spoken on so many of those topics in so much more detail, but uh, brilliant insights and thank you for being a Risky Woman. Well, thank you very much, Kimberly. Thank you for listening to this exciting episode of Risky Women Radio to connect, champion and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance. I'm Kimberly Cole, based in Hong Kong. For more information on the Risky Women Global Network, head to our website in the episode notes and please be part of the ongoing conversation by subscribing to this podcast, connecting with us at Risky Women on Twitter or even reaching out to me directly by email.